millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When I started writing Naked Lunch, people offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. 30 feet tall, in living color. Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives. You're a mock man, Bill. You're just gonna have to leave town. Tourist class, I'm afraid. finished with doing weird stuff. I thought I was too, but I guess I'm not. Hi, welcome to Horror versus Reality. I'm Anna, and Morgan is with me as per usual. Am I? Am I with you? I mean, not physically, but you are on the call. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling better, uh, finally. We tried to record like five days ago, and um, I couldn't say more than a couple of sentences without coughing my head off. So here's to not doing that. Yeah, thank God. I, I really thought you were like, going to have an asthma attack. <laughs> Like, I don't even have asthma, man. I just had a bad upper respiratory infection. Yeah, it was pretty wicked. It was pretty wicked. I was wheezing like like the Pokemon. Yeah, you're like... Wicked. Oh, Morgan, don't make me start coughing from laughing. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, yes, so today's episode is Naked Lunch, the Cronenberg film that is based loosely on William Burroughs' life more than it is the book. Because, I mean, let's be real here. 
the book Naked Lunch is not really adaptable to screen. It's a series of drugged out fever dreams, essentially. It's a book of drugged out feverish vignettes that are not super easy to film. And if they were, it would be a solid NC-17 reading. (laughs) Yeah, so... From what I remember, it's a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, uh, and a lot of um, pretentious ramblings. Uh, Yeah, and I mean, I would even argue that perhaps it wasn't pretentious hear me out because he was so fucking high that there's no way to have pretentious thoughts <laughs> i think it was it was like the you know the beat movement and everything and well just... the, beat, the beat movement itself is just pretentious yeah however like a lot of the things that that are considered really highfalutin and all that it's like guys i think you're looking into it a little too deep they were all just really fucking high. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like people read more into the beat poet's work than is actually there. No offense. There is some random brilliance in there, but a lot of it's just drugs. Yeah. It's a lot and a lot of drugs. It's a lot of just drugs. You know, your brain's not functioning on full cylinders when you've used a lot of opiates. I need to try to read it again. Like, I told you that I, I brushed off my copy from high school. And I was you did. like, I cannot read this shit. Like, I, I don't know if I was ever in the mind frame to, like, read that shit. You know, I don't think I've ever been high enough to make all that click. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just like a stream of consciousness that was so hard to understand. Yeah, because he, uh, Burroughs also really, I guess because he was high a lot, was just like, punctuation, who needs it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's Uh, none. Syntax, who needs it? You know, he just kind of literally word vomited anything that came to his little noggin onto the page. And, you know, uh, whatever stuck, stuck, I guess. I don't even, I mean, honestly, when you read that book, it's like, what did the editors take out? <laughs> you I know? I didn't think about that. Did he edit his own book? I don't know. I mean, as, as someone who edits... Being someone that edits, that's the first thing I thought about when I was thumbing through my copy was like, if this is what made it into the book, what the fuck did they take out? <laughs> yeah. And that was my yeah. yeah primary thought there. Like, what the hell? Because, I mean, yeah, we'll get into it. Because a lot of the absurdity of the novel does make it into the movie because in a lot of ways, some of those vignettes lend themselves to uh, Cronenberg's, like, body horror style. And I think he manages to convey the nightmarish quality of a drugged-out fever dream from Naked Lunch uh, pretty well, and then also somehow manages to tell the story of William Burroughs' like, burgeoning writing career and the death of his wife weirdly well, given how incoherent 
the source material is and i just think he does a really good job i realize i'm rambling myself so like it is pretty crazy to see i hope i don't offend people but like a junkie i mean he's a self-professed junkie oh yeah i mean he even wrote a book called called junkie yeah yeah like i don't i mean i've known a few addicts in my life that were on that same level and they could not write a fucking book at all no i mean of the ones i've known i feel like most of the time i just see them nodding out yeah. on the couch like barely able to make it through a 30 minute tv show yeah uh let alone crank out naked lunch that said so we're not downplaying the fact that it's still incredible that he wrote that much on heroin <laughs> And morphine and all that good stuff. Because he did a whole, you know, he'd do kind of whatever. But he liked opiates the most, I believe. Yeah, yeah. His, Joan liked amphetamines and he liked downers, which is not a good couple. <laughs> It's not, because that means Joan was tweaking out around the apartment a lot, and he was probably just nodding out, like, sit down, man. Yeah, why are you freaking out, man? Uh, but all right, so let's get into this wild fucking movie. First, we'll start with, you know, as always, we'll start with the actors and the director and get into them a little bit. So Cronenberg is a Canadian film director, screenwriter, and actor, He is one of the principal originators of what is commonly known as the body horror genre, with his films exploring visceral bodily transformation, infection, technology, and the intertwining of psychological with the physical. Cronenberg is best known for exploring these themes through sci-fi horror films such as Shivers, Scanners, Videodrome, which I will post, but I have a really cool Videodrome shirt. That is even cooler than my Santa Sangre shirt that I posted for the last episode. It is, and I know that's hard to believe because my Santa Sangre shirt's pretty cool. I know, that's a a really cool shirt. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to show it to you, but my Videodrome shirt's like pretty fucking dope. All right, uh, he also did The Fly with uh, the incomparable Jeff Goldblum, which is a fucking excellent film. I love that movie. It's a wonderful movie. And it's certainly... (laughs) I mean, it's certainly a body horror film, for sure. And he's also the director of the wonderful adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone, which I think may actually be my favorite Stephen King adaptation. And it stars Christopher Walken, so, you know, what's not to love? He's also known to do a little acting on the side, David Cronenberg. He is notably Dr. Philip K. Decker in Clive Barker's Nightbreed. He played Dr. Wimmer in Jason X, Dr. Kovich on Star Trek Discovery, and the patriarch Spencer Galloway in season four of the horror anthology Slasher. That is actually the only season of Slasher that I watched, And I watched it for two reasons. One, the fact that David Cronenberg was in it. And two, it was on Shudder instead of Netflix. (laughs) Nice. Because we know your hatred for Netflix. It's not... I've actually, okay, so I've actually started watching Netflix again. Purely because they have a feature now. And I'm told it's been... Oh, it's been out for a while, but I only just discovered it. But, you know, when it pops up after like three episodes and it's like, keep watching, question mark. Uh, now you can press a button that says, don't ask me this again. And, oh. it, and it continues to play episode after episode after episode without asking. <laughs> 
and I know a lot of people are like, no, I like that feature because, you know, uh, I might not pay attention that hard and then I'll miss some episodes. No, if I'm watching something that closely that I, that matters, then I'll be there when that says that. Yeah, don't guilt me. <laughs> yeah, but... Why do you feel bad about it? Yeah, but at night, I want to fall asleep to something. I don't want to wake up at 12 to find, are you still watching? No, play Seinfeld until the cows come home. <laughs> That's what I've been watching on Netflix, by the way. Nice. Is- is Seinfeld. Seinfeld's on the TV right now on mute, actually. <laughs> Seinfeld's a great show, and I will watch it forever. It anyway, so let's talk about Judy Davis. She plays Joan Lee and uh, Joan Frost. Davis is an Australian actress known for her work in film, television, and stage. She has a career spanning over 40 years. Uh, she's commended for her versatility and was regarded as one of the finest actresses of her generation, with frequent collaborator Woody Allen describing her as one of the most exciting actresses in the world. She's known for roles such as Sally in Woody Allen's Husbands and Husbands and Wives, which earned her an Oscar nomination, Audrey Taylor in the Coen Brothers film Barton Fink, and as Judy Garland in the miniseries Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows, among many other roles that have garnered her countless accolades. I don't know where you could stream that miniseries, but I do remember when it came on television years ago, and she's phenomenal as Judy Garland. Renee Zellweger. Oh, yes. She was in a movie about Judy Garland not that long ago that earned her, like, an Oscar nomination. And not that she was bad in that movie by any stretch, but Judy Davis is better. She plays a better Judy Garland, I feel like. That's just my opinion. No shade to Renee Zellweger. She's great. She looks a lot like her. I'm looking at the photos from it. Yeah, that that's another thing. She looks more like her than Renee Zellweger could ever hope to. Yeah, she captured it. I want to yeah. watch this now. It's good. I don't know where you could stream it. Maybe you could, fi- I don't know, you might find it on YouTube or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's worth a watch for sure. It was good. Peter Weller as Bill Lee, or uh, the William Burroughs character, rather. Because Bill Lee in his books was like his um, code name for himself, basically. So, Weller has appeared in more than 70 films and television series, including RoboCop. He <laughs> he is RoboCop, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I, uh, I was like, this guy's RoboCop when I was yes. watching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he was uh, also RoboCop in the sequel, RoboCop 2. Um, in fact, he turned down the role of RoboCop in RoboCop 3 to do this movie. What? Yeah, and I don't blame him because this is a way cooler movie than (laughs) RoboCop 3 could ever hope to be. (laughs) (laughs) He also is in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which is a classic 80s adventure film, if you've never seen it. Uh, He was also in Star Trek Into Darkness. He also appeared in Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite from 1995. Um, In television, he played Stan Liddy on the original run of Showtime's Dexter, he also played Charles, uh, Charlie Borowski in the sixth season of Sons of Anarchy. And he's had a variety of guest appearances on lots of other television shows as well. He also directs a fair amount. Um, so Ian Holm as Tom Frost. Sir Ian Holm Cuthbert, CBE. Uh, I forgot to look up what that means. I know it's a British title. Um, He's known professionally just as Ian Holm. He's an English actor 
who was knighted for his contributions to theater and film, um, beginning his career on the British stage as a standout member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He later transitioned into a successful and prolific screen career. Uh, His roles in both supporting and leading uh, parts have earned him critical acclaim and many accolades. Some of his well-known films include Ash in in, um, Alien, Mr. Kurtzman in Brazil, Francis Willis in The Madness of King George, Father Vito Cornelius in The Fifth Element, Michael Stevens in, or Mitchell Stevens rather, in The Sweet Hereafter, the voice of Chef Skinner in Ratatouille, (laughs) and most memorably, in my opinion, the elderly Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit film series. Yes. Yes, when I he see was, him, what? Oh, I was gonna say he's also in From Hell. <clears throat> Did you ever he, see that movie? Ah, uh, yes, with Johnny Depp. He is in From Hell. Yeah. Um, I thought about maybe doing that one day, but I think there's a more horror esque element. Um, I think there's a more horror fueled, uh, Jack the Ripper film that I'd like to do one day. Than from hell. Than from hell. Yeah, no offense, no offense to Johnny Depp, but no, no, I want for it. I want more gore <laughs> and less Johnny. More horror. Yes. Uh, yeah. But when I think of Ian Holm, I uh, I see Ash and then I see Bilbo, and those are the yeah. only roles that I think of him really. Um. Oh, absolutely. Like Bilbo. That's what I think of when I think of him immediately. It's just Bilbo, but then Ash, because I love, I fucking love the Alien franchise. All right, so Julian Sands as um, Yves Cloquet, or Cloquet. Uh, he's an English actor known for his roles um, in The Killing Fields, A Room with a View, Warlock, Arachnophobia, Boxing Helena, and Vatel. On television, he's known for playing Vladimir Birko in 24, Jor-El in Smallville, and Yulish Rabatov in Banshee. You might also recognize him as Miles Kastner from the abortion that was the eighth season of Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Two two uh, actors were on Dexter. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But they um, had a little reunion. Yeah, two actors were um, in Woody Allen films, too. So Yeah. Roy Schneider as Dr. Benway. Uh, Schneider, Roy, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Roy was an American actor and amateur boxer. He is described as one of the most unique and distinguished actors of all of Hollywood. He gained fame for his leading and supporting roles in the 1970s through the mid-80s. Um, I just he, couldn't, like, see him in anything other than Jaws. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I was <laughs> I was about to get that. You see him <laughs> and you just... You see him and all you think of is Chief Martin Brody. And, yeah. And we're, we're going to need a bigger boat. Going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, that's, like, all you think of. He is in all... He's also in Jaws, too, if you've ever seen that. It's significantly less good than Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he also plays the NYPD detective Cloudy Rousseau in The French Connection, 
NYP detective uh, Buddy in the Seven Ups, Dr. Levy in Marathon Man, and um, he was the choreographer and film director Joe Gideon in All That Jazz. Hmm. Yeah, he also played uh, Haywood Floyd in the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey 2010, which I can't recommend that film. Sorry, it's it's just not a Kubrick movie. And also, also like, what sequel do you need to 2001? Yeah, I didn't even know that existed. Oh, it exists, but I don't recommend watching it. <laughs> huh, Monica Mercure as Fidella. Uh, she was a stage and Canadian, a Canadian stage and screen actress. She's considered one of the country's great actors of classical and modern repertoire. In 1977, she won the Cannes Film Festival Award and Canadian Film Award for her performance in the drama film J.A. Martin Photographer. Uh, Nicholas Campbell as Hank. He is a Canadian actor and filmmaker who won three Gemini Awards for his acting. He is known for films such as Naked Lunch, Prozac Nation, New Waterford Girl, and the television series Da Vinci's Inquest. Yes. Uh, Michael Zelnicker as Martin. He is a Canadian actor, director, screenwriter. He's best known for playing Red Rodney and Clint Eastwood's award-winning, Academy Award-winning film Bird. Doug Allward in the Terry Fox story, for which he won a Genie Award for Best Supporting Actor at the 5th Annual Genie Awards, which is like the Canadian Academy Awards. In 2018, Zelnicker became a climate leader with the Climate Reality Project, trained by former Vice President Al Gore. And he now serves as the co-chair for Climate Reality's Los Angeles chapter. Yeah. So he's not really in acting anymore? He's just... He, yeah, he's just... Planet. Yeah, he's trying to save the planet. He's not really trying to act anymore. And that's okay. Yeah, that is okay. It's his calling. And, I mean, not that he was a bad actor from his accolades, but maybe this is a better profession. (laughs) (laughs) Look, he's not Meryl Streep. It's not like you know his name. That's all I'm saying. All right. So, let's get into the film. So, in 1953, Exterminator William Lee finds that his wife Joan is stealing his supply of insecticide to use as a recreational drug. He basically comes home from work one day to find her fucking shooting up bug powder into her boob, despite it being literal bug poison. (laughs) And she talks her husband into joining her in shooting up. Uh, She describes this high as very literary, as in a cough esque experience saying that it makes you feel like a bug uh you know for those who've never read kafka's book metamorphosis in it he slowly turns into a cockroach and this movie is filled with bugs and roaches so buckle up if (laughs) you don't like those sorry uh but yeah i recommend reading metamorphosis it's a good novel um if if you're into more heady things if you're into light reading i suggest uh sticking with your james patterson <laughs> <laughs> and if Bird. you're into really weird shit read naked lunch yeah Ta-da. boom okay <laughs> <laughs> uh lee is arrested by the police and he begins hallucinating from the insecticide he comes to believe that he is a secret agent and his boss is a giant talking beetle who by the way talks out of a hole in his back that looks exactly like a talking asshole yeah it's just a butthole yeah which even has the hairs around it it's so disgusting (laughs) it does it does 
And it's actually a routine right out of Naked Lunch. Uh, and Burroughs calls those routines, by the way. But there is a whole series about a talking butthole. So kudos to Cronenberg for working men in here. Mm-hmm. I bet they had so much fun making that. Oh, yeah, because, okay, so you should know that all the stuff in the movie is practical effects. It's all practical effects. There's not any CG, really, which is kind of great in some regard. Some things, uh, you know, I feel like the best effects are a perfect marriage of CG and practical. Like, that's when I feel like things work the best in movies. But for 1991 and all practical effects... These gross book, these gross bugs look pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Cronenberg is a master at making gross shit look cool, so you got to give it to him. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, the talking asshole <laughs> <laughs> assigns him the mission of killing Joan, who is allegedly an agent for an organization called Interzone Incorporated. Lee dismisses the Beatles' instructions and beats it to death with his shoe. Uh, in the next scene, we find Joan at home, breathing on cockroaches and watching them fall dead onto the floor. Because apparently her breath is poison now from taking so much insecticide. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how else to describe those scenes, but she's literally just... (sighs) Yeah, they're like crawling out of the wall, like... Yeah, and then they just like fall over dead. Jesus, lady. That's some killer breath, yo. (laughs) (laughs) Brush your teeth. (laughs) Like, maybe stop taking your husband's poison as a drug. I know, it's crazy. All right, so Lee dismisses the bug's instructions, like I said, beats it up with a shoe, and she's breathing on the bugs. Uh, so he comes home and rubs bug powder on Joan's lips, and then they fucking start making out. It's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird scene. Yeah. And so later, it cuts to him later on the subway, and he tries to steal more bug powder from a co-worker who's, like, trying to fall asleep on the subway. Um, as his has been confiscated by the police. The co-worker, taking pity on him, gives him a card uh, to go see this doctor that'll help him with his addiction. At the doctor's office, the doctor is played by Roy Schneider, by the way. But he gives Lee powdered centipede to mix in with the bug powder to help knock the addiction. Um, Like we talked about in real life, Burroughs was a junkie. And the bug powder clearly, you know, represents heroin or morphine, just opiates in general. But the centipede powder is definitely a stand-in for methadone, which shuts off your brain's receptors to opiates. When methadone's in your system, you literally can't get high on opiates. So with this powder, Lee's hoping to break its hold on his wife, Joan. He returns home to find Joan having sex with Hank, who is one of his beat poet friends. And his other friend, Martin, is reading poetry aloud, just kind of over to them while they're having sex, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it was, it's like, I just, it's so weird. Well, it's not like passionate sex. It's no. like, dr- it's drugged out, barely there sex. Yeah, it's like, is his penis even hard? She's just like laying there like half dead. And he's well, like, Ugh. what? Also, they they're like fully clothed and they're clearly not doing anything, but they're supposedly having sex. Yeah, <laughs> they don't make it look sexy at all. Just no. throwing that out there. They look like they're just dry humping on the couch. Yeah, it's really high. Uh, yeah. So 
Hank leaves and Joan goes to their bedroom to find Bill getting ready to shoot up. And uh, he like helps her shoot up like between her toes or some shit. And she says that Hank's left and Bill kind of flippantly quips, not before he came, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, all right, I see how y'all's relationship is. Got it. He pulls a small handgun out of a drawer and concludes, well, I guess it's time for our William Tell routine. And Martin grins and Joan kind of smirks and she sits there in front of the window. And during the routine, Joan balances a glass on her head and Bill tries to shoot it off. But he accidentally shoots Joan square in the forehead, killing her. This is actually how William Burroughs killed his wife Joan in reality. By fucking trying to do a William Tell routine when they were high. Yeah, it's it's still a mess. (sighs) But yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not exactly how it happened in reality in the movie, yeah. but that's the story that people stick to. <laughs> yeah, that's the story that people stick to. We may never know exactly what happened, but that's the story that's told over and over again. Um, so it's the closest thing to the truth we'll ever know. Yeah. Okay. Because so, everybody's dead. <laughs> yeah, they're all dead. And um, yeah, we'll get into it. We can anyway. do a board. <laughs> <laughs> Joan, was it an accident? (laughs) Tell me, Joan. (laughs) Yes. So he flees the scene and is up at a bar. There he meets his first mugwum, which is a huge insect-looking humanoid creature that tells him to go to the inner zone, having inadvertently accomplished his mission given to him by the talking asshole beetle. Um, (laughs) Talking asshole beetle. I don't know how else to describe it. I don't either. I think it's right. So Lee heads to Enderzone, located in a city somewhere in North Africa. Plus, Martin informed him before he left that Bill was wanted for Joan's murder, despite Martin explaining that it was an accident. So he spends his time in North Africa writing reports concerning his mission. These documents, at the insistence of his visiting literary colleagues, are eventually compiled into the titular book. Plus, Lee is addicted to an assortment of mind-altering substances, chiefly black meat, which is ground giant Brazilian centipedes. His replacement typewriter becomes a talking insect. It also talks out of an asshole-like orifice on its back. So now we have a talking asshole typewriter. Excellent. Um, It tells him to find Dr. Benway, and by seducing Joan Frost, which is a dead ringer doppelganger for his dead wife, so things are getting weird and complicated. Um, There's a row at gunpoint with Joan's husband, Tom, after Lee steals his typewriter, which is then destroyed by the Clark Nova insect, which is... Lee's typewriter, specifically. That's the brand, Clark Nova. Uh, While strung out, Lee encounters a gay Swiss gentleman, Yves Cloquette, who buys him breakfast. After concluding that Dr. Benway is actually secretly masterminding a narcotics operation for a drug called black meat, which I just told you is ground giant Brazilian centipedes. (coughs) You know, can I just say, I don't care how high... And strung out I am on drugs. I'm not going to take something that's I'm willingly know is ground centipede that you're also calling black meat. Yeah, it's pretty gross. It's but... so gross. 
Uh, yeah, I think I'd go to rehab before I take that. <laughs> Just, just my two cents there. So Lee encounters Tom's housekeeper, Fidella, um, who he previously observed to be an agent of this narcotics operation. Fidella reveals herself as Dr. Benway in disguise. After being recruited as a double agent for the black meat operation, Lee completes his report and flees interzone to Annexia with Joan Frost, the doppelganger for his dead wife. Stopped by the Annexian border patrol and instructed to prove that he is a writer as he claims, he produces a pen because that's totally proves you're a writer. <laughs> yeah, they're like, write something. But also, why does that matter <laughs> to get into a country? It's all a fever dream. Um, so this proves insufficient for passage, Lee now having realized that accidentally murdering his wife has driven him to become a writer, um, which the real Burroughs says is true, that if he hadn't accidentally killed his wife, that he probably would never be a writer. So there's that for whatever that uh, gives you. So he demonstrates his William Tell routine using a glass atop of Joan Frost's head. He again misses and thus reenacts the earlier killing of his wife. The border guards cheerfully bid him welcome to Annexia and his new life as a writer, and he is shown shedding a tear at the bittersweet accomplishment. What a fucking, yeah, what a fucking weird movie that does cover her death, which is really what we're covering here, but also, like, what the fuck did I just watch? I know, and in the whole time that, like, whenever Dr. Benway, like, Fadella takes off the mask, and then it's like, Dr. Benway, and he takes off the boobs, all I could think was, you're gonna need a bigger mug bump. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you texted me that the other I day. I know, I had to save it, I had to put it in here. Yes, um, I love it. Also, also, I'm sorry, am I in a Scooby-Doo episode? Right? Where he just, like, yeah. reve- reveals, Aha! It was me, Dr. Bidway. Hug! Yeah, like, the <laughs> whole time, it was me! <laughs> okay? It's so weird, because Fidella comes in with this, like, ringmaster suit on, smoking a cigar. Yes. And then she's like, ha ha ha, you figured us out. And then she rips off the boobs and mask. <laughs> And I would have gotten it away, too, if it wasn't for you dying kids. <laughs> yeah, damn mugwumps. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into some fun facts about the movie, as we are like to do around here. All right, so it's packed with characters based on real people and events from Burroughs' life. Like, Bill, like I said earlier, Billy is William S. Burroughs. Uh, Burroughs was really an exterminator at some point in his life in New York City, um, and he was really a drug addict, as we've also said. Um, you know, Joan Lee is Joan Vollmer. That, yeah, like I said, that's really how. Uh, well, as far as we know, it's really how he killed his wife. <laughs> um, Hank and Martin, Bill's fellow writers in the film, hundred percent represent Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, who were famous beat poets who also have infamous beat work such as on the road and hell yes fucking yes. love hell hell is fantastic i think ginsburg is the best writer of the three i do too i really love ginsburg like i remember when i was writing uh to colorado like to get to new mexico i had that writer dad if you're 
still listening to us. What's up, man? Thaddeus. But I met him on Craigslist and we were listening to like my iPod and the radio half the time. And he was like, how would you like it if I read poetry? I was like, fucking do it. And he pulled out how he had a copy of how and he read it like so theatrically and it was so great. He read the whole poem and it was amazing all the way through Kansas. Nice. Yeah, because Kansas sucks, and he made it worthwhile. Kansas does suck. Yeah, no Sorry, offense. not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no offense if you live there, but get out while you still can. <laughs> yeah, I always, always think of uh, Ginsburg when thinking of Kansas, because <laughs> I don't want to think of Kansas. I want to think of something else. Right? See, now you've got a good memory tied to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Burroughs did really move um, to North Africa. He lived in a section of Tangier in Morocco, which was known as the International Zone, hence Interzone. Ah, yeah. get it. Yeah. Tom Frost is based on Paul Bowles, and Kiki was the name of a young man Burroughs had a same sex affair with in Tangier while writing Naked Lunch. There is a care a minor character in the movie named Kiki who is like a poor Kiki. Yeah, Kiki's like a um what do you call it? A uh, male sex worker, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a real character too. I didn't bring him up much cuz he wasn't super important to the movie, but he is in there. Uh, I said this earlier, but Peter Weller turned down Robocop 3 to be in this movie. A desert was recreated on a Toronto soundstage by pouring 700 tons of sand onto the floor of a former, <laughs> yes, of a former munitions factory. And that's how they made their own interzone. Wow. Yeah. I was wondering what set it was. It's a pretty yeah. nice set. Yeah, it's a, just a big old former munitions factory turned into a soundstage in Toronto. So, yeah. yeah. A couple of mugwumps can be seen on Mythbusters. Jamie Heineman, uh, co-host of the show, worked on the animatronics for this movie. Huh. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Right? David Cronenberg wrote the screenplay on a Toshiba laptop computer during the period of time while he was acting in Clive Barker's Nightbreed. So he wrote this film while doing Nightbreed, which is pretty dope. I just keep thinking of that, um, working on my Nightbreed. <laughs> but it's night moves. You should definitely <laughs> you should definitely watch Nightbreed. Nightbreed is a wonderful, weird movie. And I just love Clive Barker to pieces. So yeah, I've you should get seen it. You should give it a go. Um I think you can watch it free on like Pluto or one of those it's definitely on one of those free channels. It might even be on Shudder now, but it's definitely on the free places. Um, it's a really good movie. And Cronenberg's character is really creepy. So give it a go. Okay, I'm saving it for later. Okay. Uh, the Portland, Oregon-based video store Movie Madness purchased one of the Mugwump bodies. And it has a display hanging from the ceiling. I so, want one. Right? <laughs> so uh, our friend Allie that lives in Portland... Allie, you now have to go visit this store and get a picture with a mugwump. That's uh that's my mission for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes. The character named William Lee is a pseudonym for William S. Burroughs, which I said before. He first used it in his novel Junkie. Um, and one memorable segment from the original novel, Junkie, uh, actually is that talking asshole. 
That's where it first appeared. Where? <laughs> in Junkie. The talking oh, asshole first okay. appealed in Junkie. I never read that. I've only read bits and pieces, but in doing research, I discovered that the, uh, yeah, the talking wow. asshole... Yes, the talking asshole first appears in Junkie. So, and some of the the um, words that he repeats are almost verbatim from Junkie. So that's fun. The line said by the Chinese man behind the counter at the exterminator headquarters: "No glot clom flide" is the final words of the novel Naked Lunch. So they got that in there. Which, by the way, that just tells you how nonsensical Naked Lunch is. Does "no glot clom flide" mean anything to you? No. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, feeling the movie had very little commercial appeal, the Canadian and American distributors only gave it a very limited release, which made it a box office bomb. But, I mean, to be fair, they weren't wrong. The masses aren't trying to watch a bug-filled, surreal journey into addiction and guilt. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we liked it, but we're weirdos. Yeah. I I really loved it. Yeah, it's a good movie. <laughs> See, you know what I realized is that this month was our uh, surreal film dive. It really was. Yeah, we Seriously. did two. We did two back to back surreal films that are fucking bonkers, and maybe they won't be the most popular episodes of our podcast ever. Thanks a I lot. So. Thank a lot. Thanks a lot. Scream. <laughs> That's our that's our most popular episode. People just can't get enough of a scream episode. Fucking scream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good episode if we're being honest. But I love when we do obscure movies like this, and I will continue to do obscure movies like this because that's my passion, you. And the more weird movies that I love, that I can find truth behind, so I can cover them. Oh, I'll do it. You just watch. <laughs> you just watch me. <laughs> I'll watch you. Anna. Yeah. So yeah. Um. Yeah, these may never be our most popular, but I guarantee you're going to find them to be a little more interesting than, say, a Dahmer episode. Not that you shouldn't listen to our Dahmer episode. We have two of them, and they're good. <laughs> but They both were good. They both were good, but I like when we do off-the-beaten-path stuff. Yeah, like... So. Uh... There's a something in my soup. I can't remember it. Oh there's God. a there's a secret in my soup. Yes, that's, that's episode four. I was about to say finger. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think it's episode. Yeah, it's episode four. It's a good episode. It's a good episode. I'm going to know, remaster that one pretty soon. And I've I've listened to it fairly recently. And can I just say we really talk about that nude scene for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that dancing scene with the chainsaw. Yeah, right? but yeah, but to be fair, it's a banana scene. It is. It doesn't fit at all. No, it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. At all. <laughs> at all. I'm still upset about that scene. But I mean, it's a decent pair of tips. It's not even the same actress. No, it's not. It's a completely different actress. <laughs> I I think it was just an excuse for nudity. <laughs> I mean, I'm not complaining. And we're giving it more airtime. <laughs> we are. We are. We're giving it more airtime. Anyway, <laughs> back to the fun facts. Yes. When Lee buys the Clark Nova, the typewriter... Uh, vacant spot in the shop window is taken by a strange sculpture of a mugwump clinging to a hanged man. While this sculpture seems to foreshadow Kiki's fate later in the movie, which is unfortunate, it's all yeah. It's also a reference to a notorious scene in the book 
where a mugwump hangs a young man for sexual gratification. So I don't remember that. Well, I mean, it's hard to really. I feel like you have to read Naked Lunch mm, three or four times to really cement anything in your head. Yeah, because it's just a string. It's a lot. It's a lot to really smush in there, and it's not super coherent. So, yeah, you need to go over that a few times. Uh, So William S. Burroughs was the heir to a fortune from his grandfather, who invented the electric alarm clock and a type of adding machine. The typewriters, once fused with insects, look like his grandfather's adding machines more than typewriters. I noticed that. Yeah. Because I've seen the old adding machines and I was like, that's not weird. Because the, the later version of it, I can't, the second one he had. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's an adding machine. Yeah. That's what that's a nod to. Aha. Aha. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. So that's all I've got on Naked Lunch. So we're going to take a short break and then morgan's going to talk to us about the real william burroughs and his wife joan's death and uh you're probably before we leave i'm also going to say you're probably thinking wait that was a horror movie and a lot of places don't even list it as that they list it as a drama but given the fact that this is an all a drug fever dream, like a drug doubt nightmare. I'm going to say it's a weird horror drama comedy hybrid. Yeah. And it's I can like cover- a dark horror comedy. Yes. And I can fucking cover it if I want to because it's my show. Yeah. It's your show, Anna. Fuck all okay. the haters. Exactly. So uh, on that note, we'll be back after this short commercial break. Hi. Welcome back. Morgan. Uh-huh. Tell us about the death of Joan Vollmer. Okay. So, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this. The date was September 6th, 1951, when Joan Vollmer was allegedly shot in the head by accident by her then-husband. This was 70 years ago. It's almost about to be 71 years ago. And um, there's, yeah. yeah, there's still mystery surrounding it. But so I'll get into Joan Vollmer and William S. Burroughs. So Joan was born in 1923 in New York. She was raised in Loudonville. I think I said that right. She attended some private school and then attended Barnard College. She was on scholarship. And that's when she moved into an apartment um, with Edie Parker, who married Jack Kerouac later. But they had the apartment where the Beats movement pretty much started. So their their apartment shared a lots of pe- lots of people came in and out of that apartment like the apartments that they had they had writers alcoholics drug addicts hustlers and some murders there was a couple of people who actually murdered a couple of people okay oh, i mean yeah like this could go on to be its own thing 
like the beat movement, which is pretty interesting. I got pretty caught up in all of the beat movement and the different writers and like in their books, they, the characters all have different names, but Volmer and Edie were a part of Jack Kerouac's novels, Burroughs novels. Uh, I think Ginsburg written poems about Volmer. So like they, they all are called up in this beat movement that was the, the fifties in New York. So Volmer had married a law student named Paul Adams in 1944 and she had a child with him. And then he was in the military and she decided to divorce him because she was doing drugs and hanging out with friends. And he was like in the military and, and went to World War II. And she was like, yeah, we're all in different wavelengths. So let's get a divorce. It happens. Oh, it was really crazy. She wanted to keep her child. Mm. Uh, like, I mean. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Don't, don't keep your kid in a bedroom while you snort Benzedrine with, like, multiple adults. <laughs> but You know, you might be an unfit mother if. Yeah, yes. Because she, um, she was introduced to Benzedrine, which is what the Nazis used. It was speed. It's a stimulant. Everybody mm-hmm. called them speeds or, I think, reds or... It's how the Blitzkrieg happened. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much the precursor to crystal meth. Um, yeah. It's oh, a yeah. synthesized version of it. Um, By the but, way, unrelated yeah. to the drugs, I I'm only two and a half hours from Loudonville. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's where she grew up. I wonder if there's like a monument to her. I probably not. Don't think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, pr- probably not. Probably not. Do you get a Do you get a statue for being the beat movement's muse? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she should have, because she was she was a muse. Absolutely. And I mean, she was the it girl pretty much of the 50s, if you want to put it that way. She was well, definitely the it girl of the beat movement. Yeah, the beat movement. But I think the 
the 40s, 50s, she was the it girl. I can't really think of anybody else other than Edie Parker. Edie Parker was also uh, Jack Kerouac's wife, and she was a uh, she was an it girl. But anywho. She really loved amphetamines. Her and William Burroughs started a psychological relationship. And in later interviews, William S. Burroughs said, yeah, I knew I was gay the whole time, but we had like a telepathic relationship is what he called it. Apparently he was fixated on her and as she was with him. But as we said earlier, someone who loves amphetamines and someone who loves downers aren't really a good couple especially in this drug sex craze that was the beat movement um so while she's high on benzedrine meth geeking out and having mental breakdowns due to like mania burrows is in and out of consciousness um you know exploring his homosexuality with with people in the beat movement and i mean she got pretty jealous, as did he, because uh, she was actually having a relationship. It's it's all hearsay. That's like the one thing. But apparently she was having a relationship with one of the men in the group, too. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's what they were alluding to in the film, where she's just sleeping with a Ginsburg or Kerouac character. It doesn't really say which one's supposed to be which, you know? But they definitely, those two actors definitely were representing yeah. those it, two. In real life, though, it wasn't either of them, because Ginsburg was openly homosexual. Um, He did not have sex with her. And then um, Kerouac was married to her roommate, and he didn't really like either one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was definitely someone, she was definitely having an affair with someone in the beat movement, not them. I don't want to name them wrong, but it may have been Ted Morgan. I can't remember if it was him or not. But anyway, they had a tumultuous relationship. They moved around a lot. They ended up going to Texas at one point. They went like all over. Like he just fucking Burroughs decided to become a farmer for a second there. And was like, I'm just going to be a farmer on my dad's farm. And then, I mean, that quickly fell through. You know, Burroughs bounced around a lot. Yeah, they were in New Waverly, Texas, um, on his family's farm. They had started farming. I don't even think they lasted a year there until they were caught, like, with drugs. And so they fled to New Orleans. And, I mean, they were, like, just so fucked up. And they were alcoholics as well as drug addicts. So they would have fights or they would just be obscene in the streets. So they get thrown into jail. So, you know, it's um, hard to have a stable life as a drug addict. Yes, especially in like the 40s too. I think I think it may be a little bit easier to get by being a drug addict now than like back in the 40s. Because if you're like fucked up, they call it lewd behavior. Like if you yell like a curse word, they're like, oh, jail. Like, oh, your, sh- your skirt's too short. Jail. You're not wearing stockings. Jail. You cook the meat too rare. Jail. You cook the meat too well done. Jail. Sorry. I can say clean. Jail, jail, just everything jail. So, um, in New Orleans, Burroughs was arrested for heroin. They also went back to where they were living, and they, 
the cops like went through their paperwork and their letters and they found a letter from Ginsburg about a shipment of marijuana from Mexico. Um, so they ended up getting criminal charges uh, or Burroughs did. He was getting criminal charges on drug distribution and drug abuse and lewd behavior. So instead of going to the infamous Angola State Prison, he fled to Mexico City, as you do. Yeah. So he went to Mexico City first. And then once he was there, Volmer joined him along with their child and her child from the previous marriage. So Volmer was really hopped up on Nims at this point and Ginsburg and him I don't know if if him and Ginsburg had a relationship but it kind of there's some allusion to it I guess because Ginsburg had said like Bill is finding himself and so are we jointly the boys are lovely easy and cheap three pesos equals 40 cents but my patience is infinite um and Ted they were two friends in the beat movement who were both exploring their homosexuality. It would not be a stretch that they may have at least banged once. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he was banging multiple people. Um, oh, around sure. Yeah, and around this time in Mexico, like, they had this relationship where um, he wouldn't pay her, like, any attention. He would shoot up, write, write shit, and she would just be inhaling. She had, like, an inhaler of meth. <laughs> they used oh, to make... Boy. And uh, Benzedrine inhalers. And she would just do the Benzedrine inhaler all day and take care of the kids. And she'd get in fights with them constantly saying, like, why aren't you taking care of the kids? This is too hard for me. And he just was like, meh, you're being too much. Um, And she would always want him to do Benzedrine, but he hated uppers. So he'd actually do... Um, one dose of cocaine to two doses of heroin, or he would do a, a benzedrine inhaler with a shot of heroin. Um, so she Jonia would like gonna speed kill him. Ball. Yeah, he would be fucking speedballing, and she's like just speeding her ass off. Um, so there's some stories that went around about domestic violence where he slapped. Joan a few times after she threw his heroin in the toilet. Um, in later accounts, he said that he had thrown her meth in the toilet. Um, but that was like way later in the eighties. Um, he actually like wrote it in his book, the junkie, um, like describing how he hit her twice across the face and she said you're so boring why do you keep doing this stuff and and she was like you're not even mad i bet you have some hidden and he says yeah and i did have some hidden um so he kind of was a liar like his story changed so much um so this is building up to them having a terrible relationship together uh she had her own room and he had another room and they said they would host parties and she would be taking care of the kids or she would be coming down off of a high and they would only spend maybe an hour together at night while they talked and then they would go to separate rooms and she'd go to sleep and he'd go to sleep as well and everybody thought it was kind of strange because they didn't even sleep together and at this point Joan's health was rapidly failing 
They said she had a, a serious blood disease. I'm assuming it was probably some hep C. She had sores and stuff. So I'm thinking it's like hep C. I don't know. She also was drinking so much from like 8 a.m. until she passed out. So she'd be doing meth and alcohol. Um, so people... what you're telling me is if he hadn't have accidentally shot her in the head, she might have killed herself anyway. Yeah. And a lot of people said she was most likely suicidal leading up to the days before this. Their big fight that happened where the drugs were thrown in the toilet didn't happen very long before she died. Um, so it was a big issue. She threw all of this heroin in the toilet. So that's a good way to get your addict husband angry with you. Yeah. Yeah, especially even though later he said it was him throwing her drugs in the toilet. But um, well, Burroughs is a liar. So who knows? Yeah. So in 1950, a petition for a divorce was initiated and somehow their divorce didn't go through. They decided to reconcile, I guess. Some reports say that Burroughs wanted to take their son, like to have full custody of the son whenever they got a divorce. And so maybe that was what caused them not to get a divorce. So this was a year, a year and a month pretty much before her death. So there were pretty bad fights that were public. She was really heavily drinking. Her health was fading. Her hair was falling out. She also had polio at one point. So she was walking with a limp and she had sores and her face was swollen. So what a, what a great time. Yeah. She didn't like look like herself. She was super beautiful when she was very young, which I mean, she was fucking young when she died. She was only 28. But in some of the pictures, her later years, she looks fucking ragged. Um, It's like hard drug use ages you or something. That's crazy. Hard drinking and drugging and babies. Um, Man, what? (laughs) Yeah, so allegedly on September 6, 1951, Burroughs and Vollmer were having a small party at their apartment. Uh, I think there was like five people there. They were drinking. They only said they were drinking, but you can definitely figure that there were drugs involved as well. Some later reports said they were all fucked up on drugs and alcohol. Burroughs said he had eight to ten drinks and did not remember the night. And then other witnesses said that he only had two drinks. There's so much hearsay. Like when this happened... The police were so confused of, like, who to believe because every single person had very different accounts of what actually happened. So the story is that everybody knows is that Burroughs said, it's the quote from the movie that he used twice, and now we're ready for our William Tell act. And she put a glass on top of her head. And apparently this, like, wasn't a thing with them and she put it on top of her head and said okay i'm ready and he shot and she immediately fell out of the seat and they said burroughs thought she was joking he was like ha great one like get up and then she didn't and they pulled her over and noticed the bullet wound directly in her forehead oops (laughs) yeah 
Shit. So according to some testimony is that if there's a murder that I don't know if this is Mexican law today or if this is Mexican law back in the day. But this is what I was reading on some of the blogs and stuff because I mean it's all hearsay. So that when there is a murder that everybody that was in the room has to be taken into jail on possible murder charges. So all of the people that were at the party left. So when the police were called, they brought her to the hospital. She was pretty much dead on arrival. She never regained consciousness. She died at the hospital. So afterwards, the people showed up to the police station so they wouldn't have been brought into custody immediately. So everybody gave different accounts. Burroughs had first said that it was an accident and that he dropped the gun and it misfired. But then whenever he got an attorney, that's when he started using his William or sorry, he uses William tell account first and then it went to dropping the gun and misfiring and mm. then i th think he went back to the original it's it's so confusing because he actually never like he never was on trial yeah yeah he um he had told some people that he had just got the gun and he dropped it and it hit the table and it misfired and it just shot her directly in the forehead which he was seems unlikely it seems very unlikely. I mean, one, that he was a good marksman. He knew how guns worked. And this is a thirty-eight revolver. There's not much complication to it, you know? And then others say he was loading the gun and then it misfired. And then someone else said that he didn't think the gun was loaded because it hadn't been used in a while and he was checking the gun and then the carriage slipped and it hit her in the head. So every fucking person had a different account. But God damn it, was anyone in this party sober? No, nobody was. I know. And <laughs> they were also scared of all going to jail. Understandable. So uh, everybody like lied. <laughs> Like, Who's to say what really happened to Joan? Yeah, there. I mean, around this time, she was supposedly having an affair with someone, and then he was having an affair with multiple men. So, yeah, it was Marker. I can't remember his first name, but Marker was one of his partners. I mean, they would have sex while she's in the next room with the kids. So... You know, this beat generation. Yeah, it was just a, a lot of rawness. <laughs> you thought the hippies had free love. It <laughs> I'm well, just apparently saying. the love here cost 40 pesos. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so no one really knows what happened. But he's said many times, if I had never killed my wife then I would not be a writer. Yeah, yeah, he accredits that a lot. Yeah, and he also, like, writes a version of Junkie. He said, was this period of withdrawal uh, followed by manic drunkenness when he was, he was drunk for a month. And during this period, as he wrote in Junkie, my emotions spilled out everywhere. 
I was uncontrollably social and would talk to anybody I could pin down. Several times I made the crudest sexual propositions to people who had given no hint of reciprocity. reciprocity. And it says, again, we have... This is uh, The Death of Joan Vollmer Burroughs, What Really Happened by Madison Haynes. It's kind of like her thesis, I think. But I found this on Silo Tips. But he says, I've been laying with, I've been laying women for the past 15 years and haven't heard any complaints from the women either. Laying a woman so far as I am concerned is okay if I can't score for a boy. But laying one woman or a thousand merely emphasizes the fact that a woman is not what I want. Better than nothing, of course. Like a tortilla is better than no food. But no matter how tortillas I eat, I still want a steak. (laughs) Steak being dick. So I'm gay, but I'm bi. Yeah, he's super bi. I'm bi. I prefer men, but I'm bi. That's, that's, That's the vibe. Yeah, and like... I mean, he was drinking from morning to night, and so was Joan. So, I mean... There's a picture of health. Yeah, and apparently... I don't know where this quote or where this came from, but let's see. It says, after the usual withdrawal horrors, Burroughs started to drink from morning to night, as Joan was also doing. And when the couple weeks he was drinking so heavily that he was threatening bar patrons with his pistol, which was unceremoniously taken away from him by a Mexican policeman. <laughs> and it even says, like, in his junkie book, you're, gonna, you're going to get your head blown off carrying that gun. If there's one thing I don't want to be around, and I think no one else particularly wants to be around, is a drunk with a gun. Like... Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, and he makes various mentions of this, you know, this act or these things leading up to it, like, awkwardly and, I don't know, kind of backhandedly, I guess, in most yeah. of his books. It's like he always had her there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much the story. And Burroughs ended up living a long-ass life. Yeah, he lived a long time. He didn't yeah. die until, what, like the 70s or 80s? No, he died in the late 90s. He was 83. Holy shit. Yeah. Right. Died yeah. in the 90s. Whoa. Yeah, 1997. That's right. It's weird to think that for a little while, William Burroughs was alive the same time we were. Yeah. Crazy, because he was born in like 1914 or something. Yeah, 1914. The man lived a long fucking life. Yeah, and... I would like to return to Naked Lunch and try to read it again, but I don't know. I guess I, I don't know how how to get in that headspace again. I think you have to read it in small chunks. Yeah, and I mean, like, a lot of people that love William S. Burroughs also really love heroin. Sorry, not sorry. Like, it's true. Like, Kurt Cobain was obsessed with William S. Burroughs, and he actually got to meet him. It was, like, his hero. And mm-hmm. William S. Burroughs, like, mentioned that he saw death in him, pretty much. He said his cheeks were sunken in and the life had already gone out. I was like, that's fucking sad. Yeah. So dude meets his hero and he's like, you're a junkie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, I'm going to blow my head off pretty soon, actually. Yeah. I mean, other people that love him is Roger Waters. 
David. This is from Wikipedia. Roger Waters, David Bowie, Patti Smith, Genesis, Ian Curtis, Lou Reed, Laurie Anderson, Tom Waits, Gary Newman, and Kurt Cobain. Oh my God! Like a bunch of those people like heroin. Yeah, they're all they all love love or loved heroin. Uh, what I've noticed with um, heroin addicts, because I've known a few, uh, is that they all seem to love heroin-related entertainment. Yes. They like, love the death, being like, close to death, too. Yeah, if there's, like, a song about heroin, they love it. If there's a musician that does a lot of heroin, they love them. If there's an actor who's strung out a lot and has done a lot of movies about heroin, they love them. That's fucking true. It's true. And if you don't think it's true, you're wrong. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Trust us. We know some people yeah. who have done really hard drugs. I mean, I'm not going to like blast my past, but I was in that group. Not shooting up or anything, but I was once in that group. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to blast, like, my family and friends either, but I mean, like, you know, I know people that still struggle with that, so. Yeah. It's tragic. It sucks. Uh, It's a devastating drug that can cause you to accidentally kill your wife. Or to blow your own head off. Or lose your life because there's fucking fentanyl and everything now, kids. Yeah, the moral of the story is don't do heroin. It's bad for you, okay? And uh, heroin is so passe. Just smoke some pot. It's legal in a lot of places. Yeah, the so, just listen to the song by the Dandy Warhols. Not if you were the last junkie on earth. Yeah, it's a good. Mo- I mean, it's a good song. It's a good song. It is. Um, yeah. Uh, opiates will kill you. Yeah. Pretty. Maybe we should put in easily. like addiction helplines on this this episode yeah i can throw in an addiction helpline absolutely i can throw in a link if you're having if you're having problems and think you might feel like playing william tell with one of your friends while you're high call this number (laughs) you can go to help.org uh and they have resources there or you can call samsa yeah so let's talk about um less depressing things that aren't drug related before (laughs) sorry people i guess we should put a trigger alert on this episode for heroin yeah we're gonna yeah we'll do that yeah trigger alert heroin because william burroughs (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) if he's not uh if he just doesn't ring that bell for you immediately just by his name Ring my heroin bell. <laughs> I was going to say that, and then I didn't. But you yeah, did, didn't, so. It didn't, didn't really go as well as I planned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If uh, heroin is triggering to you, um, this episode's probably not for you. Yeah, or binnies, or pet pills, or methamphetamine, or meth, or reds, or blues, or greens, or grays. Have you done drugs that are hard? <laughs> consider getting help yeah uh yeah so yeah we're not glorifying this at all it's not great okay so morgan Ooh, me uh yes i have a question for you <gasps> oh lord you're putting me on the spot anna not really did you finish 
Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, God, I knew you were going to ask that. No, don't tell me. And I haven't watched it yet. TikTok uh-huh. lady. <laughs> TikTok? Uh, yeah. T- TikTok videos? No. Uh-huh. TikTok, I need you to finish this show so we can talk about it. I know. I just can't. I just work and sleep all the time. Morgan, why? <laughs> so, uh, well, what have I been up to? I've been so fucking sick these past two weeks that I can barely remember what I've done. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, it's just a sleep cough syrup-induced blur. Um, yeah. Uh, You're on that see. lean. Yeah, right? Um... <laughs> So, let's see. Oh, um, Mark and I finished season two of Raised by Wolves. It is a fantastic show. If you've not watched Raised by Wolves, it is on HBO Max. It is philosophical and has religious questions and uh, it's high sci-fi and it's fantastic. Um, I don't want to say anything else, just... Go watch it. It's great. I really hope it gets a third season. Because uh, Mark and I love it so much that we, like, spend time poring over the Reddit boards. Like, trying to see tinfoil hat theories for the next season. <laughs> so oh, That's pretty sweet. Yeah, we're, like, pretty into it. It's a good show. And we have to do something to fill the void uh, of not having Winds of Winter yet. Mm, one that's- day. Yeah. Man, I can tell you what, though. People on the A Song of Ice and Fire uh, subreddit, they're getting... They're getting getting pissed. They're, like, hangry. Uh, (laughs) Like, they're not... They're not them when they don't eat. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're... They're not down with the fan fiction? No, they're, like, demanding that fucking George R. R. Martin write Winds of Winter. And guys, I hate to break it to you, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but he does not owe you that book. (laughs) He really doesn't. Like, he could never write it. And I don't think he'd lose any sleep. Yeah, he's he's enjoying his um caviar and champagne or whatever. Look, look, I don't know. Got... I don't think he's a caviar and champagne kind of guy, but I mean, let him enjoy it. He looks like a steak and cheese curls kind of guy, but you know, <laughs> he looks like a bloomin' onion kind of guy. <laughs> Oh my god, Morgan. Blooming Onion sounds so good. I know. I love Blooming Onions. They open in 30 minutes. Don't say that to me. (laughs) I'm crazy enough to just drive to a fucking Outback. And I don't even know where one is near me. I have one right down the street. And Andrew makes fun of me when he's like, hey, what do you want to eat? And I'm like, Outback. <laughs> he's like, we have thousands of restaurants around us and you choose Outback. Well, but sometimes I, I just crave Outback. I don't know. You want a blooming onion? I want a blooming onion. And a Foster's? I don't get Foster's. Because it's Australian for beer. Australian for beer. <laughs> Uh, I wonder where one is near me. Oh, there's... Lumen Shrimp right now. Shut up. (laughs) They're so fucking good. That's... Oh, my God. I'm literally gaining 10 pounds as I'm talking about this. Me too. Damn it, Morgan. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I can't help it. I'm going to be getting fat in a different way, I hope. I really hope they sponsor us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That'd be amazing. I doubt it. But... 
I, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, in several hours, I will be heading to the Salt City Horror Con. And Ooh. yes, and I'm hoping that when I see audition on the big screen that I will have like, you know, fatty theater treats to eat. Um, yeah. And it's not have to bring in our purses like that time we saw uh, the girl on the train or whatever. It was girl in her. No, it was, oh, uh, it was Gone Girl. It was Gone Girl. Yeah. And we had Target popcorn. <laughs> we had, yes. We had smuggled in Target popcorn and a six pack of PBR. <laughs> and it was a good time. And, and you brought all those candy. There was so many assorted candies. And they have dropped by Dollar Tree where the movie theater candy is a dollar. <laughs> you know, I won't say what major theater chain I uh, shirked out of money, but it was one of them. Yeah, it was one of them. You could guess in probably like three guesses because there's literally only like three now. That's true. I would <laughs> never do that to a small theater. Yeah, no. You know, you know? Yeah, like the independent movie theater down for me, like I would never fucking do that. Yeah. I always donate to them. Like I always paid money to go to the drive-in. Yeah. I, I bought their food, you know, despite the fact that I easily could have smuggled food in my car. I never did that. The, t- the tickets are really cheap anyway. Yeah. They have to make some money somehow. And I'm going to eat their chicken strips. Because, yeah. first of all, you could actually get delicious chicken strips. From the drive-in? From, yeah. The drive-in that I used to live near had good food. I um, have never been to a drive-in. Oh my god, Morgan! Never. We, maybe I should try to see if there's one near Rochester. I mean, Buffalo. Yeah. When we go drive-ins. Because I love a drive-in. Drive-ins are my fucking jam. Like, see, I lived by one, and but when I lived by one, uh, it was shut down. And then a by another one and it was also shut down and then oh, when I no. moved they reopened and I'm like am I the the factor here am I shutting down the drive-ins and I don't even know it oh no oh no <laughs> yeah I've lived by like three and they all closed down like right when I moved there stupid that's awful uh yeah when I lived in um when I lived in Watertown there's a place nearby it's called the Blackwater Drive-In or something like that sounds Black like River. Murdered there. It's called the Black River Drive. Okay. <laughs> the city's called Black River, so it's not it's not too crazy. It's actually a really cozy little drive-in. I don't think you'd get murdered there. I mean, I hope not anyway. <laughs> not like the golden state killer drive-in uh, no no it's not <laughs> it's not that uh you know <laughs> what's that hotel where like the night soccer stayed in oh oh fuck why'd you ask i'm sorry it's not that drive-in it's either it's the something yeah i know an american horror story the like spoof of that hotel was called the cortez but yeah now i can't think of what the actual place is called <laughs> Cecil. The Cecil. Cecil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yana stayed there, by the way. What? Mm -hmm. I don't Uh, know if I could ever stay there. Because that's, like, right on Skid Row. Uh, okay, so it was several years ago. Her and her mom and her sister were going to buy merchandise for their store. Uh, wholesale, you know. And, um, Yana willingly booked a hotel room there. Fuck that. And did not tell her mother (laughs) where they were until they were checked in oh my god 
<laughs> like, oh, by the way, this is the Cecil Hotel where, like, a serial killer used to stay and a girl definitely just fucking disappeared and then appeared dead in the water. Water tank. Water tank. No big deal. And yeah, like, course, countless uh, murders, suicides, rapes, robberies. I'm pretty sure she wanted to stay there because, because of its history and because it was cheap. Like, yeah. the, double, the double standard there. And then I think she maybe took a little bit of joy in seeing the horror on her family's face when she <laughs> told them where they were. That's, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I can't necessarily say I wouldn't do something like that. <laughs> See, I would just be scared. Like, if you're buying a bunch of stuff, I'd be like, shit, like, people are going to break in here and Well, no, I feel, I feel like they literally, like, got there, stayed a day, the next day went out, did the purchases, and flew out. Okay. I feel like they didn't, like, bring thousands of dollars worth of merchandise back to a glorified hostel. <laughs> yeah, I would hope not. I don't think they did that. Because there are definitely hostel rooms at that place. Yeah, like, you, like shared bathrooms and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there are there are private rooms and then there are places where you can just like share with people. And uh, I wouldn't want to do that. I'm honestly afraid of hostels. Not because of the movie Hostel or any horror movies. But just like, I don't want to get robbed. I don't trust other random people backpacking through Europe. Yeah. No I've offense. I've seen a few. I've seen I just, a few I, and they're, they're nice. I mean... I just don't think I could sleep in another room with strangers. Well, Andrew and I stayed in two or three. Um, one in Canada. Maybe just two. Because we stayed in one in Canada and one in Alaska. Um, okay. But there, there weren't many people there. The first night we stayed, they accidentally overbooked. And Andrew and I were like, well, we'll just sleep in this in the same bunk bed. <laughs> Well, you know, first it was just a twin mattress. <laughs> But we had our stuff, like, with us. And then I stayed in one in New Mexico uh, with my friend Cullen. And we actually paid a little bit extra to get, a, like, our private room in the hostel. Oh, all right. Yeah, it didn't have the same... It, we didn't have a bathroom. It just had two beds in there. So um, that wasn't as scary as, like, staying in the open part. Right. Yeah, I just... I have bad enough insomnia as it is. There's just no way I'd be able to sleep in a situation like that. I just yeah, we, know myself. I mean, uh, Andrew and I are still friends with the girl. Um, I don't know if Anja, if you're listening, but you rock. And we had a great time. It, um, oh my God, I want to name them. Um, it was in Canada. I don't even know if it exists anymore. I mean, it may. It's like right near downtown. Um, oh, what was it? It's um, like old Montreal, kind of. Oh, all right. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Um, even though they overbooked, they were like super sweet. And one person was like, oh no, I had a room. And they were like, well, we're overbooked, but our uh, friends have a hostel. We'll drive you there. And I thought that was cool because they drove them across the city to like get them to their another hostel. Um, oh. and, yeah, and since they overbooked for us and we had to stay in the same um, bunk bed, it was like a twin bed. 
they gave us a, a couple, you know, like $10 off or something. And they cooked breakfast. And then after Formula One left, like we had the hostel to ourselves pretty much. So we just ate like breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the people that live there. Oh, nice. Yeah, they just shared. And we'd throw in some, a couple bucks for the food. Yeah, we stayed up late night drinking and having fun, listening to music, eating fruit. <laughs> So nice. it was it was a fun time. I definitely loved the hostel vibe in Montreal. Okay. All right. That sounds not so bad. Yeah, I highly recommend it. They're great. So people. guess so guess what? What? There is a drive in <gasps> thirty minutes from Buffalo. What? Mm-hmm. Where is it? Um it's in um what does it say? Please it's, don't say Fredonia. It's not Fredonia. Okay. <laughs> it's in Lockport. Ha! Lockport. Lockport. Okay. So we might, we might could, we might could catch a movie there while we're th- while we're in Buffalo. Sweet. Yeah. Can't guarantee that because it says that it might only. I don't know if it's gonna have more days open later on, but currently it's only open on Saturdays and Sundays. Oh. Yeah, and I feel like if you're gonna want to. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we're gonna be able to do that, but we'll figure something. We'll figure something out fun to do on the second day. Oh. Yeah, but um, so we're gonna go now. We have other things to do. I have a nap to take, you know? Yeah, I do too, because I worked all night. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go to fucking sleep, guys. We're going to go to sleep. Yeah, and catch you in April for Ooh. a new episode. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll catch you then. Fuck yeah. Until then, listen to all of our old episodes. Yeah, and dive uh, yeah, dive on in. <laughs> Oh, God, now I want fucking Outback again. I forgot about it. Now I want it again. Sorry. That's actually from American Dad. It's something that Roger says when he franchises his bar out. Like, oh. his catch his catchphrases dive on in. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down to Roger's spot. Dive on in. Dive on in. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> We're gonna go. Bye. Go eat Outback. All right. Bye. <laughs>